Our reading in the epistle this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, verses 1 through 10, chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance for us to do. <clears throat> I want what I deserve. That's often the cry for justice that we hear. And it's certainly true from a standpoint of all things civil rights or legal and even consumer oriented. But what happens when what we deserve is not the most awesome thing in the world? What happens when we come face to face with the reality that we haven't been the best friend, spouse, parent, child, employee, or student? We are often very sensitive to when the scales of justice tip against us, but what about the times when the scales of justice condemn us? How aware are we of that reality? The way of the world is to focus on where we have been wronged and getting what we deserve from those who have wronged us. But the way of Jesus is to offer mercy. But to do that, we must lay down our own sense of the greatest virtue of all being justice and instead substitute it with grace. How we do that comes into view only when we recognize our own need for grace. And this is where most of the world loses touch with Christianity. Christianity has never been about getting justice. It is true that God desires justice for those who are civilly oppressed but that is because God is a God of love. But understand this. The gospel is not about God giving justice to the oppressed. The gospel is about God giving mercy and grace to sinners. His grace is what we need. His grace is what saves us. And this text reminds us that we don't get what we deserve. We get mercy and grace. And praise God for that. The scripture that the choir just sang to us comes from the third chapter of John. And I'll be reading verses 14 through 21 this morning. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that they have done, that what they have done has been done on the sight of God. Let's pray together for Pastor Mike. God, we thank you for loving us beyond what we could ever deserve, beyond what we could ever comprehend. And it's by your Spirit's power that we can cry out to you today asking for mercy and for grace. For truly that is why you came. Fill Pastor Mike this morning with your Holy Spirit that his words may speak the truth of the gospel boldly and mightily. And may our hearts and ears be ready to receive them. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. This morning to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I aim not to waste that opportunity. Are you ready to hear it? Are you eager to hear that gospel? And let's get right to it. It begins with a simple question. Not that question, but a different question. I want it to pop up on the screen. Why? 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 Oh, you jumped me one. All right. Why? Have you ever played the why game with a little girl or a little boy? You ever played the, the why game with someone? I, I could imagine playing the why game in here with one of our four-year-olds who would come in and say, Pastor Mike, why is the carpet this color? I said, well, I don't know because someone loved purple. And they would say, but why would you call this purple? I said, well, I probably wouldn't call it purple. I'd call it magenta. But why would you call it magenta? Well, because I know the color wheel and so forth. Well, why did they pick magenta? Well, somebody probably liked the mixture of grape pop and strawberry pop, and that's magenta, I guess. I don't know. Have you ever played that game with someone? Is there ever an end to the why game? Maybe adulthood, right? But, but why is one of the most basic questions of, uh, of our lives. I, I have a why friend. His name is Bruce. No matter what happens, Bruce, you know, you can lay out a plan of what you're going to do and everything, and, and, and then he'll just look at you and say, but why? Why? Why are you doing that? See, why is a beautiful question, but it also is a challenging question, isn't it? Because when somebody asks you why, or when somebody asks me why, it challenges my basic assumptions. It, it challenges what I've thought through. It challenges what we're going to do. It, it, it asks us why. I always get a kick out of the fact that oftentimes I'll sit with families or young couples generally, maybe some of you had this question. At the end of my last counseling session before they get married, I usually say, so why do you want to get married to her? 
Seems reasonable. We've got the church all reserved, got a hall reserved somewhere. Why, why do you want to get married to her? And they'll wander around and say, well, because she likes the same TV programs I have or she likes the kind of places I like to eat or we seem to like be able to talk to each other. I said, but, but why? And, they, and finally, one of them will come up with saying, because I love her. Right. That's why. We always have to look below the base questions of life to say, why did this happen? Before you do anything, before you believe anything, before you agree with anything, you have to know why. Why? Fruitful, dynamic Christians must be able to answer a very simple why question. And it's there on the screen. Why did God send Jesus why? See, our immersion in church life, when I come into the 830 service, there's, there, 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 there's so many I see of you that have been here for such a long time and maybe heard hundreds of sermons from various pastors. And, and I remind you that, that our immersion into church life, our immersion into to worship, our immersion into doing the works of the church, our immersion to, 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 into making fly sandwiches, our immersion into all of those things cannot dull our senses to the very important question and the base truth of Christianity. It cannot dull our senses to the powerful truth that there is a magnificent meaning in the Jesus event and it is not simply to be nicer to others. Why did God send Jesus? Because people had separated themselves from God. And by people, I include you and I in that. So we're in need of what's called atonement. And one of my Bible school study classmates last Sunday said, or last Wednesday night, simply said, we need to break that down. It's at one meant. We were made to be at one with God. We were made in his image. We were to be not only like him, but to be with him. But over the course of our development of our own human free will, we've inserted things between us and God that push us away from him. That's called sin in our generation. And so we're separated from him and we need to come back. We need to be fused back to the life of God. A couple weeks ago, I got something new in my office, and because of that, we were taking all the stuff off the mantelpiece over my office in the Carnegie Center, and one of my precious things is a, on that mantelpiece is a nativity set that some of our missionaries from Marian Methodist brought back to me from Mozambique, but of course, that wood now has gotten a little bit older, and, and as we moved some of the stuff, one of the back legs fell off one of the donkeys in the nativity scene, and that left me with a choice. I could leave it a three-legged donkey and lean it up against the wall and call it lucky, <laughs> right? Or I could fix it. I could glue it back together. The donkey on its own volition had no ability because it was, well, you know, lifeless and would to fix itself. So, so I had those two choices and I chose to fix it because I didn't want my set to be broken. I wanted it to, to be one. And you see, this is not veiled very thickly our souls are broken from god our souls have have removed themselves from god we've allowed sin into our lives and we cannot fix it on our own our own volition cannot bring us back to be at one with god and so crod sends jesus because we cannot fix it ourselves only through being united with the life of god that comes to us in jesus christ can we become righteous 
and perfected in the sight of God. See, God sent Jesus on a rescue mission. God sent Jesus on a rescue mission. That's the answer to the question, why? See, Jesus did not come to show signs. He didn't come to to take a couple of fish and loaves and feed 5,000. He didn't come to walk on the water. He didn't come to speak potent words. He didn't even come to give us life advice. He He did do all those things. But Christ came as God incarnate, as God in the flesh. Because humanity, that's you, me, and everybody else that preceded us and will succeed us in life, have separated themselves by God, by their own volition, ignoring the clear instructions that had come to us to have whole and fruitful living in the Old and New Testament prophets and in the law givers, and separated ourselves from God. See, Jesus was not on a teaching mission. So many people think that he was. So many people say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. He gave us all this advice. But but look at the words of Maxie Dunham, the, 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 the former president of Asbury Seminary in Christ Church in Memphis. He says, Jesus is not on a teaching mission. He's on a life-saving mission. That's really important to us. He was not on a teaching mission because he's a lifesaver. Imagine this. A lifeguard sees a person drowning. And they're, they're doing the, you know, the old one, two, and they're going out for the third time. And the lifeguard swims out to them in the lake and arrives, arrives at them. Do you think the lifeguard would say, you know, really what you need to do now is cup your left hand and pull it over your head, then pull the right one over, turn your head to breathe. That's not the moment to teach them how to swim, is it? That's not what a lifeguard does when somebody needs saving. They say, you need to swim. Nor does a lifeguard swim all the way out to someone who's drowning. And when they get there saying, listen, you know, your mom tried to send you to swimming lessons when you were young. You should have learned how to swim. You should have learned how to do this because you're in trouble here. No, that's not what they do. That's not the moment for condemnation. That's not the moment for teaching. The lifeguard just comes to save those who are in need of saving. That's what lifeguards do. That's what lifesavers do. And that's what Jesus does. He just comes to save those who need saving. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. You know, we have not one of those, do we, in our church? A big neon sign like that kind of freaks out the little Methodist soul, doesn't it? You say, boy, I hope in our nerd church we don't put one of those up. But we're going to. Because you already have one that looks like that. We're afraid of that neon blinking Jesus saves sign because we're afraid that somebody's going to walk up to us and make us go to Lindmar High School or Marion High School football games and stand on a box and say, turn or burn. We're afraid that we're going to have to shout into a microphone or, or, or a megaphone or listen to those that do because of the connotations that's been put on this. Signs like that make us nervous. But I want to tell you, that's the central fact of human history. And it's the truth of our faith. And it's why you're here. You wouldn't come to listen to him and me or even them sing marvelous songs week after week if you didn't believe that. You say, oh, it's a nice group. Coffee's pretty good. Donuts are all right. But you come because that drives you or you want it to. Jesus saves. 
Jesus saves. He saved you and me. And the reason that we have the inclination to get up on Sunday morning and come in here to sermons that are sometimes great and sometimes, you know, okay. It's because we believe that Jesus saves and he's rescued us from all that was wrong with our lives. And the disciples don't hold back. The disciples did not hold back on promoting that message, Jesus saves. You know, there's Peter, not too long after all the crucifixion events have been held, and he's teaching and preaching right in the midst of all the Jewish people, and they call him, they call him in front of them to say why they're teaching and preaching in his name. Look what, what Peter says. He says this, and know this, this is in Acts chapter 4, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you, now listen to the point here, whom you, he's pointing, whom you crucified. He points right at the Jewish people. Whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man, the man who had healed, stands before you healed. Jesus, the stone the builders rejected, which has become very important cornerstone, says this, salvation is found, listen to this exclusivity, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus saves. Praise the Lord, as Pastor Keith said. There's been many helpers. There's been many teachers. There's been many, many prophets that came along. But there's only been one Savior, and we'll only need ever one Savior. Because in that one Savior, God shows us the true value that each one of us hold. He plans our rescue before we choose it. He plans our rescue before we choose to be rescued. See, we don't get what we deserve. I have a friend out in the West. He was a mountaineer. I don't know if you know what a mountaineer is. He spent his whole life outside in the mountains. His name is Bill Black. He lives in Monarch, Colorado. But because of his life experience, he's part of rescue teams. Now listen to this story. This is a story that changed Bill Black's life. Bill was called in a rescue mission to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. A couple had hiked down, not in the most popular places to hike down, but in kind of a side trail, and they'd headed down the Colorado River, and the woman in the, two, in the couple had fallen and broken her leg. So Bill was called, and it was such a difficult place to go down. They couldn't come down there. In that particular location, they couldn't drop them in. They had to walk down, and they carried a very lightweight gurney, a, a stretcher, to carry her up, to strap her to it and stretch it out. They took them, you know, quite a number of hours to get down there. When they got down there, they made lunch. They ate lunch, fortify them, get their nutrition up, and said, all right, let's go. And they started to unfold their gurney. Listen to this. Even though this woman had broken her leg now a day and a half previous and she had a homemade splint attached to it, the husband said, thank you for coming. Thank you so very much for coming. But we think we can make it on our own. Now, the state of Arizona had already paid for the rescue. They'd already sent the people to rescue them and they'd given them all the ability to rescue them. But this couple said, no, we can make it on our own. <clears throat> Bill Black said, I didn't know what to do. He said, I wanted to tie them both to the gurney and carry them because I knew what their outcomes were going to be, which is exactly what happened. Both of them perished because their rescuer was rebuffed. The rescuers were sent home, not rescuing them. 
Now, of course, don't miss the point in this. It's fairly obvious. You know where you're sitting. You know where this is going. The question is posed to us then. Knowing what we know about ourselves, knowing about what we've done in our own lives and what it is that we deserve, knowing what we know about the world and God, do I desire to be rescued? Do I desire to be rescued? And the first decision you have to make is, am I in peril? Am I in any trouble at all where I'm at right now? Or is it all good with my soul? You know, we sing it, it's well with our soul. But you know, Christians are supposed to sing that while we're becoming well in our soul. But are you sinless? Are, are you perfect? Are you without any dark blot on your sin? Is there no thing beside, between you and God? Are you just reaching out, walking hand in hand with God just like Enoch did? Are you walking with the God that created you in his image so perfectly that you can say, I don't need any help. I figured out all the life questions. I've got my own eternal destiny arranged for. I've made my own provisions. I don't need you. To, to that, this is what Billy Graham says. Books on death and dying have proliferated in recent days, as have books by those who claim to have experienced death and come to tell about it. Rather than looking for a way to make peace with God, hear that again, rather than looking for a way to make peace with God, the world has instead come up with classes on dying and how to face death and accepting it as a normal part of living. Actually, all of mankind, I would add, humankind, is sitting on death row. How we die or when we die is not the main issue. But where we go after death, that's the issue. See, eternal life is not a stretching out. It's not an extension of what you have right now. Eternal life is not that. Eternal life is an adoption into the life of Christ. You become united in the life of Christ. And that life, that, that, that lockstep walking with Christ begins when you receive him. And it continues through his forever. Sin and darkness have been eradicated. Mourning and crying and tears are, are no more. There's no death. There's, there's, there's no darkness. You've become a child of God. And even in the midst of this life, even though you may fail, of course, and sin again, when you receive Christ, you're a child of God and you can walk with him, seeking and begging his forgiveness as you go. John three eighteen, which Keith read a moment ago, says, Who believes, whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus saves. And, and peace with God means making your peace so that you might have life in his one Son, Christ. See, the question why addresses a simple question are you in peril? Are you in peril? And it leads to a second decision. Do I want to be rescued? Do, do I want to be rescued? Am I, am, if I'm in peril, I need to be rescued, but do I want to be rescued? In John chapter 3, verses 19 and following, say this. This is the verdict, which means that's the decision. Light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness. Instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed but whoever lives the butts are important in this but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done and has has been done in the sight of god the lifesaver you see simply put comes to save that's his function 
That's his purpose. That is his aim. And he intends to fulfill it in your reality, in your real reality. Do you need a rescue? Do you need a rescue? See, in our sin-filled reality, we allow it to be exposed so that the light of Christ can, can, can shine into our real lives, not, not just the life we want to admit. You know, we all have different lives, right? We have a life we'll admit, and we have the real life. And Christ's light shines into our real life, not just simply that which we'd like to admit. Because Jesus comes to rescue. Now, I've seen every Clint Eastwood movie that there is, and I'm looking forward to the next ones. And I can quote many, many, many of his lines in the movie. And here's one that I'm going to quote inappropriate to the context in which it was offered because I enjoyed it so much. And I think it resonates in our soul. One person was looking at him and he said, I don't deserve this. And Clint Eastwood simply said, deserve has nothing to do with it. And given what Pastor Keith has read from Ephesians 2 and what I've known all my life, we get what we don't deserve if we believe in Jesus Christ because if we get what we deserve, we are all in trouble. Now, I've preached sermons like this more times than a few, and every time, I remember the last time, actually, I preached a sermon like this, a salvation, simple salvation message, because that's what the scriptures gave us to. I was met out here in the hallway by one of the great saints of the church, and they said, well, Pastor Mike, when you preach a sermon like that, and you just preach on the salvation message in one of the passages, it's like you're preaching to the choir. I said, you're right, and I never thought for a minute that the choir or the congregation didn't need it. We need to hear the salvation message again and again. It's why we're here. It's part of who we've become. When when we talk about getting what we don't deserve, we have all at one time or another gotten something we don't deserve. And we've been grateful for it. And the only response to that is is to be not to ask, I didn't earn this, or, you know, just, you know, push it away or something like that, but to be grateful and thankful. And, 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 of course, that's our response to Jesus Christ. When Jesus offers us salvation, We're to be grateful and and, and give thanksgiving because we can't earn it. We can't earn our salvation. The proper response is simply gratitude and praise and thanksgiving. Dwight Moody, who's a great preacher of the last century, said this. The way to be saved is to not delay, but to come and take. Now, we Methodists have a hard time with that idea of taking because i got to tell you, one of the things we're great at is giving. And I'm so proud of this congregation and the, and the congregations I've served that we're good at giving. But there is this thing we do need to take. It is as if God has lined our salvation up across the table of the fellowship hall or across the table of the communion. And he says, simply come and take it. It was prepared for you. Just take that which I desire you to receive. Take what I give to you so that we might be at one forever now i just want to take a moment right now it is important in a weekly congregation from time to time to make a call and that call is simply this if your life is not right with jesus christ and you know that because you knew better before you came today 
Or if you've always been longing to say, Jesus, I believe in you. I want to give my whole life to you. I want to take what you're giving to me. I want to receive that which is my eternal life. I want to walk with you forever. Or, or, or if you're completely new to the church and you've just said, I'm looking for something that sounds like this is what I want, the free gift of God that leads to eternal life, then I just want to make a call upon you right now. I'm not, and I've done it before, but I'm not here going to say, Come forward and kneel down, and Keith or Vicky or I will pray for you, although I'd love to do that. I long to do that. I'd love to shake your hand and say you just made the greatest decision you've ever made in your life by receiving Christ or renewing your faith in him or repledging your life to him. But today I'm not going to do that. I mean, I'm going to ask you a simple thing, though. And sometimes we have to make public proclamations of this. And so, so if you're really desirous of allowing that Holy Spirit into your life, and maybe you've done that in the course of this sermon, or you're going to plan to do that in just a couple minutes. I'm going to ask you to do a very simplistic thing. I'm going to ask you to take pen or pencil and write on the back of one of those offerings, today was my day. That's it. Nobody has to do it. Some of you might want to do it. But if today's the day you want to drink Jesus Christ into your life because there is no other for you, I'd ask you just write down today, is my day because salvation is there for your taking and the saved then ask the question then what now what well it's pretty simple because anyone that's received their salvation understands this that the life motivations and the actions of the rescued align with the rescuer if you've been rescued, you don't want anybody else to drown. And the rescued deliberately align their motivations and their actions with God's plan. See, I've said it many times that, that if you're hurt and if you're struggling, if you're knowing that you want to receive Jesus Christ, there to me is three words you need to know. Believe which is believe that Jesus Christ is God's only son, receive the salvation that's offered to you and the Holy Spirit that God lets come into your life to eradicate your, your sins, to grant you the forgiveness, to wash your soul as clean as white, and then become. So receive, receive, believe, receive, become. Become the person that God always intended you to be. Become the person that God created you to be by walking lockstep with him through all of life deliberately doing on purpose whatever God would have you do, aligning your life so that it fits with God's family plan. To have a scriptural worldview, that is to say to put the scriptures, the word of God in front of you and allow them to ask, answer every why question, every how question, every what question in your life. To simply see whatever it is, social things like we were talking about earlier this morning, physical things or spiritual things that every answer is in the Old and New Testament for your life and every motivation and action or call to action is there as well. And understand this, that the rescued rescue. When I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, it wasn't too long after that that I really thought I need to become a pastor because I want everybody to have what I know. And I would pray that anyone here that knows Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior wants everyone to have him for theirs too. How would you not? We live in a socialized faith, which is to say we were told about Christ. 
there's probably one or two of you that met him like Paul did on Damascus Road that just met him and we were in a vacuum of life and you didn't have that. But most of us were told by a brother, sister, mother, father, pastor, teacher, friend, invitation of some sort. And so the call of the rescued is to rescue. It's to make that invitation, to invite people to come to know your Savior. This is the gospel message. Jesus saves. It's a central fact of humanity. It's a central fact of our faith. It's the central fact of my life. And I pray it's of your life too. So when somebody asks, what is the purpose of Jesus coming? It's to save. What is the purpose of the church? It's to save. And that's why. No matter what church I'm the pastor at, as long as I have life and breath in my lungs, you can bet everything you have that it's going to have a sign that says, Jesus saves. Praise the Lord. Did you hear the gospel today? Then amen. Well, we first joined this church in 1964. We had moved to Marion. Uh, I actually grew up around this territory. I went to Marion High School, but uh, had been away for quite a while. And, uh, of course, we liked it because we knew quite a few people that went to this church. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> So that's always been a big thing is we just, we kind of know the church family and get along well with them and uh, has a pleasant time, good fellowship here. When he says church family, it really is a family. Once we get moved, the past is gone and I don't dwell on things like what we left. I, um, it will be new and exciting and um, I can just picture that first um, um, service and everybody's going to come in and say wow look at this and isn't this great and, and uh, hey there's no stairs and and all this and um, and I don't think we're going to dwell on what we are leaving it, it's past I guess I'd say well someday we're moving on and and uh, this building can't be here forever, and why don't we be the ones to prepare it for the next yeah, people? Yeah. Well, yeah, in fact, I, I think she has said that a few times about people of our generation. They have uh, moved on from the houses that they had when they were raising a family and bought a new, went to different, maybe condominium or something else that more fit their needs for their uh situation in life at that point and uh, so I think as our congregation has multiplied here uh, we can see this church is we're kind of outgrown it in many ways uh, so I think we'll get used to, and I, I would say this to uh, the people that are a little hesitant that uh, you're probably going to really enjoy the new church and uh, see the many benefits of it once you get used to it. Mm -hmm.